Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on Sister Title Investors Chronicle. Um, with us today, we have, of course, uh, Asset Allocator's um, contributing editor, David Thorpe. And also, we have Simon Evan-Cook, uh, fund manager at Downing. Uh, Simon, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, my pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. Thank you. So you've, I suppose you had a bit of a kind of hiatus from the industry and then you've returned at Downing and you guys have kind of recently launched um, some kind of multi-asset portfolios. I suppose there's, you know, there's lots of competition for this space still, lots of competition for assets. What do you think, what do you think can actually be done sort of differently if you want to kind of stand out? Yeah, I think quite a lot can be done differently. The industry... It goes through these pendulum swings, right, of going one direction, then another direction. I think the way it's been heading recently has been quite unhelpful for end users. You've seen a lot of consolidation in the multi-asset industry, particularly, and that is driving more and more clients and funds into the hands of fewer allocators. And those allocators are running very much larger pots of money and a very much sometimes more of a kind of rigid, almost academic way sometimes. And I don't know that the outcomes from that are um, particularly helpful. Um, so I think there's a great deal. I think you can look at what people are doing today and you can improve on an awful lot. And that's really what um, drove me. It's why I joined Downing. It's why I set up the funds that I have, the Downing Fox funds, in the way that I have, is to just provide something that I think is much better i'm a sort of engineering i'm not i haven't got an engineering background but i've got a sort of engineering mentality of mm. you know, when you think something could be made better it's very frustrating to not be able to make it better so yeah that's my kind of mission at downing is to create something that actually works and is is good so will you be more flexible like some some uh, some of your peers for example use uh, risk profiles that that are provided by third parties, for example, and they sort of stay within the asset allocation parameters of those things. Uh, is that something you're doing or are you completely free-handed uh, in terms of what your allocations are? Neither and both uh, <laughs> is probably the best answer for that. So we're not having our asset allocation provided by a third party. I think quite often those those systems are based on past data and as you saw last year, if you have a, a, a period where one asset class, you know, gilts is the obvious one or bonds was the obvious one, where for 10, 15 years it looks amazing, what that doesn't encounter is the risks that are building in that. And therefore, it can sort of herd you into those types of asset classes that uh, potentially I have got a kind of one in 20 year problem brewing so we're not we're not giving the asset allocation to a third party if you like but at the same time we are restricting ourselves a lot um, for starters when you look at our fund range we have on the titles of the fund denoted exactly how much equity you can expect to hold in those funds and we are not deviating at all from that so we've got the 100 percent 80 percent 60 percent 40 percent downing fox uh, equity funds and the reason we've done that is because i think if you're really trying to focus on helping financial advisors and their clients, then you have to offer them something that gives them a level of reliability. I don't think you can give them complete or offer free range as allocation, as in going from 
fully risk on one day to fully risk off the next or to go from you know 80% equities to 60% to 90% because if you think about it from a financial advisor's perspective what they tend to be doing is looking at each individual client and deciding okay you need this much risk and maybe we'll reduce that risk because you're approaching retirement if they're reducing risk at exactly the same time that I as a fund manager for whatever reason I think it's the right time or the valuation suggests or I'm just feeling a bit more chipper this morning decide to add more risk on then I'm effectively tucking the financial advisor up right I'm kind of I'm adding risk at the point they're taking it away and I think that can be counterproductive um, there's not a great deal to suggest I think also that taking risk off and adding risk on there's not many funds or fund managers I've seen or come across that have been able to do that successfully. So it's a part of the process I've given away, but it's a part I've kind of gladly given away. It's almost like tying one hand behind my back, but it was a hand that used to get in the way quite a bit in the past. <laughs> I suppose a kind of common saying in investment is, you know, the idea that allocation drives returns and people perhaps have difference of opinion about fund selection and security selection versus that allocation you know how do you where do you sit on that kind of spectrum i think it's quite a confused debate because that quote that and i think there's normally a number that goes with it which yeah. is 90 percent uh is driven by asset allocation that is true but i believe that the asset allocation should be done by the end client or the financial advisor because i think what that quote is saying that Obviously, whether you hold cash or equities over a 20-year period, you're going to get vastly different results from doing that. And I would have no argument with that. That's very obvious. Where I think that has been twisted, it's been twisted by certain um, parts of the industry to suggest that, therefore, because asset allocation makes the biggest difference, therefore, you should focus 90% of your mental firepower on making asset allocation decisions. I don't agree with that part of it. I think what you should do is set an asset allocation decision and allow the client or the advisor who know their own risk parameters to decide that. The bit that I think you can make a difference and should make a difference on is security selection and the level above that fund selection. I think when you look at what uh, human beings can do and what investors have been able to do successfully in the past, you think of the investing greats, the Warren Buffetts, the Anthony Boltons, the Peter Lynches. They have done that through security selection. They have not done it by diving into or out of the markets or by switching asset allocations. They're the ones who have repeatedly run a process that has made money. I cannot think of any asset allocators, pure asset allocators, that you'd put in anywhere near the same league as Warren Buffett. So that's why at Downing Fox, we have entirely set the process around um, making sure the asset allocation is fairly static. So we're not going to, we're reducing the ability for us to make mistakes on that. And then really to focus the firepower on, firstly, us finding amazing fund managers. And secondly, those fund managers doing their thing over a long time period. So we are looking for future Warren Buffetts, Anthony Boltons, uh, you know, Angus Tullocks of the like. Mm. And that's the bit where we feel we can add the difference. It's certainly what worked at Premier Might in the years when I was there. The best part by a long way was uh, fund selection and through that then the underlying security selection from the advisors. So we have at Downing Fox focused the entire offering around that differentiator. And just, uh, I think I'm curious about, as you mentioned, 
the various funds and their equity allocation. You mentioned that one of them is 100% equities. So is that uh, that's relatively unusual, I think, in, in, in multi-asset um, to, to be 100. Um, so is that a fund of equity funds that comprise 100? It is exactly that. It is a fund of uh, long-only equity funds. It's full of long-only, highly active fund managers. So it's... There's a there's a great way of doing things in uh, in life, and I'm going to mispronounce it probably, but it's called via negativa, I think, and it's something that um, Nassim Taleb talks about a lot. And it's about how quite often the best way to make something better is not to add more stuff to it; it is to remove stuff. So when you, uh, we you know, we were talking as quite a lot of uh, podcasts do before you go on air about our breakfast this morning and about how. <laughs> what's healthy what's not with diets certainly the recommended thing is actually to remove a lot of food rather than if you've got a problem with your skin i don't know whatever it might be actually removing a load of food is a better thing to do than add more foods in add more pills add more supplements that way you might eliminate the thing that's causing you the harm and away you go so when you look at our uh, 100% equity fund we have removed all the stuff that doesn't work and just been left with what I believe does work. And that for me is bottom up stock selectors, maybe running a value process, maybe you'd call it a quality growth, maybe even a slightly higher growth process. But it's very similar in across that you would have basically just got stock selectors in there. So we put them together in a fund, highly active fund managers, and we just um, let them go. What we do pay attention to is making sure that it's well balanced between growth managers value managers so that we're not going on the wild swings you get from being purely value or purely growth and we're not trying to time entry or exit from those styles either which i think again is another thing that people have found to be impossible over the years too so yeah it is unusual to do that but it's a core part of what we do one of the things that we've noticed in our asset allocator uh, databases is that Many of your peers, they their allocations to global equity funds are relatively meagre. And, you know, in, in one way, a global equity fund is somebody doing the asset allocation uh, for you. In your 100% equity allocation, are there is there much in the way of allocation to global equity mandates specifically? Yes, there is. And this is quite a departure from what we're doing uh Premier Mike, we never, we were like a lot of investors, we wouldn't hold global funds. When I look at uh, what we're doing now, we have around half of that portfolio is in global funds. And there's a very good reason for that. We were talking a little bit earlier about asset allocation. One of my beliefs is that one of the biggest risks to the success of our funds is me. In fact, it is the biggest risk. So I'm trying to remove me as far as possible as being the big risk to these funds uh, as, as the funds fund manager. Now, the most obvious way to do that or for me to mess it up would be through asset allocation changes. So that might be going heavily into US equities or out of US equities or into Japan, out of Japan. So we have quite a static allocation, uh, even geographically. But what we do have is half the portfolio into global funds. Now, the reason for that is because it means that I'm allowing specifically and deliberately those global fund managers to set my geographical asset allocation for me. And why I'm quite happy to do that is because when you look at doing top-down geographical asset allocation, it's a nonsense quite often. 
uh, when you look, I mean, the UK is the obvious example, right? Quite often you'll see multi-asset fund managers or portfolio managers will come on and they'll give you a big long spiel about the UK economy, how great it is, how bad it is, how bad Brexit was, how good the underlying economy is, whatever it might be. And then they'll say, for whatever reason, we are now buying more UK equities and they'll go out and buy the FTSE All Share Tracker. Now, we all know the FTSE All Share Tracker is stuffed full of BP, Shell, Vodafone, banks, which have nothing to do or very, very little to do with the UK economy whatsoever. So using macroeconomics to then move around a tracker is complete and utter nonsense, simply. So for me, the best way to do it is to allow the actual fund managers to find the best stocks, the best investments from the bottom up. If that means you end up with half of that exposure in the US, fine. If it's a quarter, fine. If it's three quarters, fine. If that's where the best ideas are based on the actual companies and, and the business uh, operations they face, then great. I'm absolutely all for it. So yeah, we are a slight departure in the sense that we are using global funds uh, very specifically for that reason. And I guess the reason why we're not using 100% global funds is because I think where there is a limitation for global funds is they tend to be a little bit more generalist um, in the way that they can operate um, because they maybe can't dig as deeply into local markets as a local expert might be able to. So the rest of the portfolio is in what I'd call local specialists. So in Japan, we have a fund manager that is looking at very closely at engaging with companies, looking at the corporate reform that's going on there, looking at you know, into the smaller mid cap world. So really digging into the local market. And I think those fund managers will find ideas that a global fund manager would miss. And I think over the probably over 10 years, they will probably be the better performers, but they'll probably be a bit lumpier maybe than the global funds would be. I think between the two of them, it's a great mix of kind of deep alpha versus sort of generalist, but, you know, again, deep enough alpha to make good returns. Do you uh, sort of agree with the premise some people have that perhaps some markets are better or worse for stock pickers than others? You know, I suppose the US has been notoriously seen as bit of a graveyard for many stock pickers at least over the last decade or so which has admittedly been quite strange and then perhaps maybe Europe UK those kind of less popular markets perhaps some people view them more as kind of a you know somewhere active actually can add some value yeah I do um to some extent I don't agree fully that you shouldn't bother with US uh, equity fund managers uh in fact I don't agree with it at all I think that as long as you have got patience and you've got the ability to find good fund managers and enough choice to choose from you will find fund managers who will outperform uh, over a 10-year period and you'll find good growth fund managers quality managers value managers so I don't agree with it enough to buy a US tracker for example I think all of these markets go through periods as well when it's easier for active managers and it's harder so I think particularly in the US it has been a horrible time over the last 10 years and again this year it's been a terrible time because of the biggest companies in that market and how well they performed so this year has been a great example of that where you've had the biggest seven companies in the S&P 500 which make up I don't know whatever it is now 25 percent plus of that market have been rallying because they are amazing companies and business conditions have been suiting them 
but business conditions can change. You can get antitrust coming in, you can get competition coming in, whatever it might be. And if should those big seven companies suddenly turn the other way and the winds go against them, you're gonna find active fund managers will have a whale of a time in that market. Um, and you've almost seen the opposite with the UK. You've had UK fund managers have a very easy run of it over the last 10 years, because they've been up against oil companies, which everybody hated. Um, they had a rough six months when oil companies bounced back. But again, it's starting to look this year like maybe they're coming back a little bit. So it's very hard to tell when active managers are going to work and when they're not. But I, I do think there are some markets that are less efficient than others. For me personally, Asia seems to have been an area where I've been able to find amazing fund managers over the years. And maybe that's because of those markets and the amount of local investors in there. Maybe that makes it a little bit easier for them to, to have alpha. I think the other thing as well is single market versus many markets. So it's for a fund selector, I think it's harder to pick an emerging market fund than it is to pick, say, a Japan fund or a UK fund because you've just got that many more moving parts of currency, region, politics. Whereas if you're just picking a Japan fund, everything is contained. You'd have to worry about currency movements, foxing things or, you know, um, picking between two different countries with different politicians and so on and so forth. How do you think about allocating to small cap funds? I mean, there's a, you know, there's an argument that uh, companies have been able to stay private for longer, and therefore the aggregate quality of of a smaller mid cap sector would be would be would be lower. Uh, we obviously have higher interest rates now, which which strains liquidity, and it's going to be the smaller mid cap area that suffers most. But at the other end of it, there's more opportunity for uh, asymmetry for for facts that are not known to the market to be exploited by small cap managers so potentially greater chances to uh, generate alpha yeah i'm a i'm a huge fan of smaller companies and smaller companies funds if i was simply investing uh, and i wasn't going to be judged year to year if i if i was had the luxury which nobody has right if i had the luxury of running a fund that people would put money into on day one and then come back to in 20 years time and just take their money and judge you on that 20 year number, I would just only buy small caps. I wouldn't buy anything else. Uh, but the unfortunate truth is that along that journey, if you only bought small caps, there are gonna be certain years or two years or three years when it looks horrible. We've had one of those periods recently. So if you'd only been in small caps, you're probably you know, looking for a new job by now because it has been <laughs> that horrible to only be small caps. Uh, in terms of right today, I think it is a great time to buy them. Um, does that mean for the next six months or a year that they won't have a hard time? They might well do. I mean, it seems to be that where we are in the current world, the market or certainly the central banks almost want us to have a recession. And you would imagine that smaller companies won't fare so well in a recession. But what we don't know is, is that in the price? Uh, we've, we, there's, a, there's an assumption that smaller companies will do worse if there is a sell-off, but then when you look back at history, that is not always the case. And I think the most appropriate time period to look at, which has a lot of things that rhyme with where we are today, is 99, 2000, and then the bear market, which lasted for three years after that. Now that was a bear market in which mega caps were killed, but actually small and mid caps, and particularly small and mid caps, where you'd had a fund manager who, checked for quality and valuation actually outperformed by quite a long way over that three-year period so 
it's not always the case that in a bear market or even if there's a recession there was a very light recession in 2000 that small caps will underperform so it might be that everyone is diligently avoiding small caps now and going into large caps because they think a recession's coming a recession will come and actually that turns out to be the wrong thing to do I often talk about something called the god of markets which is this kind of cruel deity which looks over markets and it's basically always trying to trick you into doing exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time and it feels to me like the big trap at the moment is that it's pulling you seriously into mega caps into the sort of global titans trade uh, and once everyone's in there and the last person's locked the door behind them then the god will trash them and you'll be you'll end up losing a lot of money from that trade but we'll we'll see what happens on that front <laughs> very um uh, uplifting uh, idea there. um <laughs> on uh, just it is if you're in small caps yeah. <laughs> yeah i was gonna say if you're contrarian um staying with the idea of um small i just wanted to touch on you you mentioned earlier the kind of idea of maybe differentiating yourself by going slightly off the beaten track with funds and i suppose that then perhaps leads you to smaller funds and boutiques and that kind of thing how i guess how small would you go and also what do you what assures you that kind of things are ship-shaped? Because I suppose we've had some cases with boutiques where things haven't really kind of worked out so well in, in recent years. And there are, you know, I assume various kind of boxes that you need to tick. Yeah, we do look at it very, very closely, particularly, obviously, in the small cap world. Um, you know, And I, it's something I've always looked closely, not just at Downing. We always did it at Premier Might as well. Um, you, yeah, certain asset classes... I would never buy in an open-ended format. We're only buying open-ended funds in the Downing Fox funds for starters. So it does unfortunately rule me out from buying, say, microcap, because I don't think microcaps should be held in an open-ended format. Um, that's a shame. I think it's a great asset class, but it's just not one that's for us. But I do also think the industry gets this the wrong way round quite a bit. It's a soapbox I often climb up upon and, and rant from, uh, because the first thing is that the industry looks at small funds and thinks there is a problem there potentially with liquidity. A small fund is more liquid than a large fund. It's really about what the underlying asset class is. So if you are in a smaller company's fund, you want to be in a smaller fund, not in a larger fund, um, all other things being equal. So the obviously the big liquidity event that everyone remembers in our industry was the Woodford blow up. Mm. Now, that was a boutique, yes, but it was a massive fund. So for me, it's the massive fund part that's the key thing, not the boutique. Everyone seems to have learned the lesson and the wrong lesson, which is to now avoid boutiques, not avoid massive funds that are investing in tiny little securities. That was the problem with Woodford, was that it was you know, a very large pool of money and a decent amount of that money was investing into some very, very small stocks. The opposite, so I'll give you an example. I won't give the fund's name, but we bought a, um, a smaller company's fund when we were at um, Premier Mighton, and that fund was about five, six million pounds when we bought it. We ended up owning 45 million pounds of what then became a 50 million pound fund. And this was at the time that the Woodford saga hit. So we were getting questions very, very specifically uh, aimed at us saying you know this is the fund we're worried about it's a small fund you own a massive amount of it are you worried about it 
Mm. And my answer was, no, that fund is absolutely at the bottom of my list of worries because we own 45 million of it. The fund managers we know own the other 5 million of it. Neither of us are going anywhere. So actually there's zero risk of that fund being a problem at all. Um, it's more where you are in a small fund perhaps where you know another fund buyer perhaps coming into that fund might have had concerns because they you know they see us being a large holder and don't necessarily know our intentions although hopefully reputationally we are known as long holders of funds so that would give people some comfort but yeah you are in a much worse position being a sort of mid-sized holder of a somewhat large fund of which there are bigger holders and the underlying uh, stocks are illiquid. That's where you need to be careful. So it is about understanding what can really cause the issues. So yeah, we are hot on it. So when we're buying a small fund, we just need to know to make sure what it is you know that they're holding. If we're buying a large fund, that's where we're more careful. If you're buying, like I said, a large fund holding small stuff, that's where you you could be in trouble. So you own ninety five percent of a fund. You were quite happy to own ninety five percent of the units of a fund. Uh, yeah, absolutely, we were. Wow. Yeah, we'd own a hundred percent for sure. If it's a hundred percent, then there's no other problem from other users. So, <laughs> and if it's yeah, basically, if it's ninety-five percent, and you know the other holder, and they're the founder, then it's it's the same. Yeah, it's you are more. Yeah, like I say, it, it's riskier holding fifteen percent of a fund where someone else owns forty percent of it. Mm. And perhaps that co-owner risk is even worse now. We're seeing the sort of consolidation in the industry. Yeah, the consolidation is a big thing, right? Because you are seeing bigger and bigger holders. Uh, so they really cannot buy funds uh, unless they are starting to reach 500 million or a billion, which obviously cuts down the amount of choice that you have massively. So another reason why I was quite happy to start up again was I do like buying new funds. It's what drove performance of Premier Mind. It's why we won the awards, why we raised the assets, was because we found fund after fund after fund that just was small at the time, but then went on to become, you know, almost an industry name, but perhaps not an industry name, but a fund that won awards and went on to outperform um, because that's where the alpha lies. When you buy smaller funds uh, with a fund manager who's got something to prove and has got the flexibility to do it, that's the way to go. If I was limited now to just buying the handful of funds that are available that are 500 million plus, I'd honestly be thinking about retiring because there's there's no fun to be had there. I don't think I could really add a great deal of, of alpha. Yeah, the best returns are going to come from finding the amazing funds of the future. Uh, the example uh, I always use is that we were the first backer at Premier of the Evenload Income Fund, which is reasonably well known in the industry now, uh, Hugh Yarrow's fund. That was another fund that was about, I believe, six to eight million pounds when we first bought that back in 2010-11. We bought that instead of Woodford's fund. It was relatively similar at the time in terms of how it operated, but we were drawn to the smaller fund with the younger fund manager who was hungrier and maybe was sort of, you know, I think probably had better ideals and better principles uh, and it did well. And now that fund is up at two, three billion pounds. It's very well widely owned. I think it's still viable at that size because they've, they've closed it at a reasonably good point. But we now own the Evenload Global Equity Fund, which is a fund that we bought um, a year ago or so at, when it was around about 30 million pounds. It operates in a way that's fairly similar to Fundsmith, but they've got way more flexibility um, it's cheaper 
And I think the fund managers, again, particularly when it comes to attitudes towards tax, have got a better attitude than perhaps the uh, the fundsmith managers do. Um, yeah, well, uh, lots to ponder there, but uh, I'm afraid that is time. Uh, so just thanks to Simon for coming on. And David, thank you as always for your time. Thank you. And thanks, Simon. Nice to speak again. Yeah, my pleasure. Always, always happy to chat with you chaps. And thank you everyone for listening. Take care.